Episode 5, Burying Behavioral Jesus, Part 2. I'm going to pick up just a little bit after where I left off yesterday and uh, continue reading this excerpt from this particular section of Chapter 1. In my own life, I have had to bury behavioral Jesus, the Jesus who hovers over us, watching our every move in order to control our behaviors time and time again. The temptations to embrace this facsimile of the real Redeemer are intriguing. I want desperately to be able to solve my own frustrations with myself by welcoming the behavioral modifier into my heart and mind. It's always a pathway of poison for me. It leads me into living like a modern-day monk, groveling at the feet of an angry god I have made up in my mind. I kneel in hope that I will not be punished for my ongoing life's troubles, unreconciled to the theology I know about a loving God and resurrected Jesus. It has taken years to unwind my predisposed ideas about behavioral Christianity. The messages come early and often with a faith conversion, ranging from messages about abstaining from premarital sex to abstaining from alcohol or drugs or any other litany of outward behaviors. These messages gather momentum in the believer's life and soon manifest into what someone believes to be their faith. If they can behave correctly, then God will show his favor on their lives. One doesn't have to look very far in the modern church to find out there is a veritable cornucopia of thou shalt nots. Even more insidious and soul-crushing is the list of shalls that embed paralyzing guilt into the young psyche of a new believer. There is a direct pathway in evangelicalism for anyone to embrace a caricature that embodies these ideas about all the things that a believer must and must not do. The church has gone out of its way to make sure that this make-believe persona is alive and well and is promoted as the most enviable way of living. I have come to call this caricature Joe Grow. This moniker encapsulates his attitudes and devious magnetism. This fictitious and amorphous character is a symbol of the Christian work's pursuit. It is easy and incredibly tempting as believers to lock arms with this character and parade off to the next adventure of self-righteousness. Once fully embedded into the segmentation and grouping of behavioral categories, the disdain of others is easy and justified. Mr. Grow justifies our ill will towards others and allows us to build walls and fences around ourselves to insulate us from other people. The other pathway that Joe Grow is famous for, and the more likely of the two paths for people to follow, is the one that embraces Mr. Grow's hollow theology and then sadly crumbles into disbelief and skepticism 
as he leads them into a vicious cycle of self-denial and loathing that awaits them in the Bible studies and the must-attend spiritual events put on by great Christian people in the church. Their disillusionment is palpable, and their participation in faith fleeting, because they could never measure up to the venerated behavioral legend. Both sell the real story of redemption horrifically short. Both start in the falsified vision of behavioral Jesus. Both instruct those entrapped in this false narrative to spend their energy working towards their salvation. It presupposes that there is a God sitting with an abacus, taking inventory of each damning thought or action they can't wrestle past with self-control. In my readings and meanderings through scriptures, I have struggled to find how this behavioralism is genuinely reconciled with the acts of Jesus. His work is forever described in scripture as a complete work. The Apostle Paul wrote poignantly about what the work of Jesus was really about, which I think makes the best argument in history for the burial of behavioral Jesus. I have included the full passage from the message to read without the little numbers we love so much, because the writing is a crescendo of ideas that shouldn't be broken into simple verses that act as the frosting on intellectual cake. This is a founder and hero of the faith I espouse, telling anyone who will listen what this gift of the Messiah was really about. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, that faithful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live in a continuous, low-lying, black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. The law always ended up being used as a band-aid on sin instead of a deep healing of it. And now what the law code asked for us, but we couldn't deliver, is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral muscle, but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's actions in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing as God. Obsession with self in these matters is a dead end. Attention to God leads us out into the open, into a spacious, free life. Focusing on the self is the opposite of focusing on God. Anyone completely absorbed in self ignores God, ends up thinking more about self than God himself. That person ignores who God is and what he is doing, and God isn't pleased at being ignored. But if God himself is taking up residence in your life, you could hardly be thinking more of yourself than him. Anyone, of course, 
who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience all the limitations of sin, you yourself live on God's terms. It stands to reason, doesn't it, that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing in you that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. When God lives and breathes in you, and he does as surely as he did in Jesus, you are delivered from what is a dead life. With his spirit living in you, your body will be as alive as Christ. So don't you see that we don't owe this old do-it-yourself life one red cent? There's nothing in it for us, nothing at all. The best thing to do is give a decent burial and get on with your new life. God's Spirit beckons. There are things to do and places to go. This resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurous, expectant, greeting God with a childlike, What's next, God? God's Spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we are. We know who He is, and we know who we are, father and children, and we know we are going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with Him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with Him as well. I think there's so much in that little particular element of scripture that Paul is giving to us that is just mind-boggling, honestly. My favorite piece of that is that is the sentence that talks about, you know, anyone, of course, who has not welcomed this invisible but clearly present God, the Spirit of Christ, won't know what we're talking about. But for those of you who welcome him, in whom he dwells, even though you still experience the limitations of sin, you, you yourself experience life on God's terms. It stands to reason that if the alive and present God who raised Jesus from the dead moves into your life, he'll do the same thing that he did in Jesus, bringing you alive to himself. I, that's almost like close the book, amen, hallelujah, the whole thing's over. I love that sentiment. I love the idea that what Paul is telling people in the church at this time through this whole passage is not that, hey, you know what, it's all great and here's a bunch of things that you need to fix. He's saying, wait a second, if God did all these things, don't you belong to the same story? Don't you belong to the same lineage? The beauty and wonder of a life transformed by the goodness of God. I think I, I put this in the book because it's it's one of those scriptures that just absolutely should rattle every believer. And I love it in the message because it's just so poignant. It's so real. It's so alive. It's so in your face that God is saying to you, wait a second. You know, Paul's talking to these people and saying, hang on, hang on. You, you don't really understand what God actually is doing. He's not actually asking you to live up to this old self. Bury it. Put it in the ground. Move on. God's got so much better for you than what you think he might have. 
the, the resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. What a great picture that is. You didn't get the chance to go along and sort of hope that God would do something in the middle of things because you behaved well, because you looked right, because you tended to the grave. He's saying, move on, bury it, be gone. Let God do amazing things in your life simply because he said he would. This Jesus story is, what's next? What's next, God? What do you have next for me? What a beautiful deal. He's not, I think we as Christians just spend so much time worrying about whether or not we're looking right or doing right or going to church enough. And will God be happy with me that I've done the things that I think the church has asked me to do? Did I did I attend this group this week? Did I reach out to the mops group? Did I do the stuff and go to small group? And did I end up taking care of all the obligations? He doesn't say that. It's the flip side of that. What is next? What could be better for me? What could I have out there? I think we as people of faith actually owe ourselves the opportunity to think that way, to say, you know what? I'd rather wonder what is next for me. What's next in this, in this sort of adventurous life with God, you know, I, it may come as a surprise to anybody who actually has spent their life in the church, but the people on the outside of those walls don't want to talk to us. They don't, they don't want to talk to people in the church. And it's simply because of this misconception about what we are. They think of us, and rightfully so, as people who just want to put a bunch of things together in rules and organizations and categories and make sure that everybody's doing the right thing and they don't have tattoos and they're not smoking and they're not having sex and they're not drinking and they're, you know, they're just sort of living this sort of bonnet, covering, dress-wearing life. And I just believe if we would be people who would reach out to the other side of that and say, you know what, it really isn't about how I look or how I feel or how I hope that God looks at me in this behavioralism situation, we might actually have the chance to reach out to people and say, hey, join the adventure. Be a part of what we have to offer. God has this incredible world awaiting us and we should we should embrace it fully. We should be ready to go and say come with us. This is incredible. You can't believe what God is doing for us. We've spent so much time on the other side of this. We've spent so much time in the church trying to look right and do the right thing and shape up. We have membership courses and Goodness sakes, it's easier to become a Christian than it is to be a member of most churches. That's tragic. It's sad. It's sick. It's devastating to the core of who we are as, as to what we think of as the grace of God infusing our life. You know, this resurrection life you receive from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next God? What a cool line. What a cool thing that if we could visualize ourselves in the church and actually live out from that space instead of 
wondering, oh, you know, well, I, I don't know if I could do it because God might not approve of it. And what does he think about me in this space? I just hope that we as believers have the chance to flip that on its head and look at it and say, I just want to live the adventure. I'm in. I'm all in on the adventure. There's so much more to this chapter. I <laughs> It's the longest one of the whole deal. And I continue to just hope that it sets the tone for what we're doing as people of faith, people of grace, people who actually embrace the goodness of God and say, I'm, I'm all in. I don't have anything together, but I'm in for the adventure. I'm here. I don't know what it looks like to be well. I don't know what it looks like to live well. I don't know what it looks like to behave well. But I do know that you have my back and I'm in. I'm on it with you. I'm going with you wherever you go. And actually, I want to drag all my friends with me because I want them to be in on this adventure too. I hope this is spurring on some conversation. I hope there's a chance for us as people to actually engage in this conversation about grace and life and living. Um, I hope the book is, if you're reading it, I hope that there's some inspiration to it. If you're listening to this, I hope that there's some goodness in it. My hope as a, as a person that lived my whole life kind of striving for hoping that God would look at me with favor because I behaved well, my hope is that in all of this, that you're starting to uh, hear in me and hear in this conversation that that's not really what he's about. Um, if we go through the hard times with him, then we're certainly going to go through the good times with him as well. What a cool picture. He's beside us. He isn't, he's not a, he's not a drag you across the line, push you across the line or, or then standing as referee across the line, judging you and sort of counting down how miserable you have performed. I hope that as we have this conversation, those of you who are listening are, uh, are getting something from it and asking these questions and starting to wonder about what does faith actually have for me? Um, we'll be back again with another episode down the road and I hope that people are listening to it. Join us in the conversation. You can come to um, carelessinthecare.com, email us, write us, read the book, um, do whatever you want to do. It's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everything else. If you go to carelessinthecare.com, there's all sorts of ways to buy the book. There's all sorts of ways to listen to our music. There's all sorts of ways to engage with us, including this podcast. Email us, uh, talk to us. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. And we will be back again with another episode further continuing in chapter one. Thank you.